The button has been pushed. Commencing podcast now. Oh God, yes, yes, yes. Welcome to Pop Tech Jam, the independent audio magazine about consumer technology, pop culture, and just getting by here in the summer of 2020. I'm J.D. Beersdorfer. And I'm Pedro Rafael Rosado. On this week's show, we have some pop culture to talk about. We also have uh, probably about 10 days worth of tech news headlines. And I have a hopefully helpful hint about looking for your ancestors in uh, newspapers back in the day to discover maybe some little news about them you didn't know and also what it was like in the time period they were living in. So that's all on this week's episode. But before we roll on up into the news, El Kaiser, do you have a uh, pop cultural observation which you'd like to share? I do. I'm uh, I'm I'm back on my TV grind. Last show, I I had stopped for a little while because I was just getting you know a little too TV'd out. But I decided to dive back into uh, to two shows specifically: Titans on DC Universe, yes, and The Letter for the King, which is a sword and sorcery type you know fantasy type Game of Thrones light type thing. But it's actually based on a YA book. Okay, so it's not about the Postal Service or anything. <laughs> no, no, it's not about the Postal Service. But it is about someone trying to get a letter to a king. Obviously, it says it all in the in the name. Through Thick and Thin. It's a Netflix show aimed directly at teens. But I really enjoyed it because I took it for what it's supposed to be. You know, it's supposed to be a Game of Thrones for kids Okay, so less uh, overt violence on oh, all less, aspects. Yeah, no, no, less overt violence. I mean, there's still some sword play and, you know, people get run through with swords, but there's no exploding heads, no gushing buckets of blood, no Monty Python level, yeah, you know, well, violence. Like the, the T.H. White, you know, that the, the, uh, you know, they based the sword and the stone on, you know, well, the Correct. Disney movie and then also the book, you know, that that was sort of very sanitized, I think, uh, knights in armor or sword type of thing. So th this is sort of more like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Just like that. Just like that. But you know what? It's, it's, it suckered me in because I mean, it's not great television. Don't get me wrong. You know, there's some really gaping holes and it's like the whole story, even though it's six episodes, it feels rushed through, but I'm a sucker for sword and sorcery stuff, game of Thrones type thing, Lord of the Rings type thing. And I like the fact that I could share this with my kids you know, I can't watch Game of Thrones with them and Lord of the Rings. I think right now, even the movies might be a little too much for at least my young one, maybe my daughter, but my young ones. But it was nice being able to share this with them. You know, we were doing the remote watching type deal. Mm -hmm. So it's one of these deals where if you've got nothing else <laughs> going on that you want to watch and you want some mindless, you know, fun, give that a watch. You know, everyone needs the the sort of Doritos for the brain. You know, it's not right. particularly educational or good for no. you, but you know, it's just something that it takes your mind off where you're at. Oh yeah, and it's a well-meaning show and you'll see it once you get, you know, once you see the casting. They try to check off all the boxes in terms of, you know, hey, we want to make sure it's all inclusive. And you know, I, that's sweet. I, I kind of like the fact they tried so hard. You know, they've got the kid of color. Okay, fine. They've got the empowered girl. Okay, fine. They've got the new gay couple. Okay, fine. Okay, they so. have strong women characters. Okay, fine. You know, I was like, I get it. I, you know, yeah, I, I mean, appreciate it, it. it. I think there's a checklist going around. And oh, yeah. If that's what they have to use until 
this sort of casting becomes, becomes more natural. organic and inclusive yeah. and doesn't feel sort of, uh, you know, panicky. If this is sort of the little bridge that we need to get to that moment. I'll take it. Yeah, because kids who are watching this may not realize that that's sort of the, the motivation for that. But if they see themselves on screen, if they see that representation, Correct. no matter how it got there, that gives them a little boost. And then when they grow up, they're just going to do this stuff naturally when they create their own projects. And, and so maybe we, we get there that way. And now just another quick note on another TV show, Titans, DC Universe, I mentioned. Yes. Best comic book show on television right now. All right. Now, this is the one that you didn't like so much the first season, and then you came back, and then you liked it. Yes. A, the second season has really salvaged the show. They finally introduced Nightwing. You know, please, I, that's not a spoiler for anyone who understands the Teen Titans. Yeah, if you've been you reading know. them since the 80s. Yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. So. You know, it's Nightwing. That's the whole thing. Whereas the first season was like crapping all over Batman. They brought Bruce Wayne in. They didn't bring Batman. Mm -hmm. They brought Bruce Wayne in. And the guy, uh, ironically enough, is a an is someone who used to be on Game of Thrones. One of the actors is you know put on his American accent and is doing Bruce Wayne. Good pick, by okay. the way. Ian Glenn is the actor's name. It isn't as cartoonish as the other Berlanti shows. This is actually a Berlanti show, as I've mentioned before. Yeah, he basically does all the DC stuff. Yeah, pretty them. much. He yeah. does them all. But this one, it it takes itself seriously, but not too seriously. It's very, very in line with the comic book, you know, vibe that, you know, they, these are earth shattering events that are happening. And Isai Morales played Deathstroke, Slade Wilson, and he was great. Fantastic choice for Deathstroke. The casting has been fantastic. I enjoy the second season so much better than the first. And right now it is the best comic book show on TV, bar none. All right, so. so if you really want some good DC, and I'm telling you, the DC universe on television is far and ahead of the DC universe on film. So enjoy it while it lasts. Oh, and also, hey, Batman rumors flying around that Batman's going to be coming back. The original Batman, Michael Keaton. Well, not really the original Batman. But, but the one know, from the 1989 reboot with the Prince soundtrack exactly. that got Batman back on the map. So is he going to do Frank Miller's Dark Knight? Is that what we're No, 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 no. He's going to be in the Flash movie. That's the rumor. I'm not sure okay. if it's been confirmed yet. By the time people listen to this, it might be confirmed. It might be poo-pooed. But rumor has it because of the whole multiverse thing, which included the, the Berlanti TV shows, the Flash movie is going to include the Michael Keaton multiverse version of Batman. All right. So is he going to be on the Batwalker in this? Or do I don't know. know. He's obviously going to play the older Batman. But, I mean, I'm excited about that. Very yeah, excited. It's a nice anyway. little continuity loop there for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, I think we had news, didn't we? We, we had some some news. Um, you know, as, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the summer 2020 or even 2020 in general uh, is proving to be uh, a nightmare. Yeah, nightmare, chaotic, unsettling times, however. Apocalyptic. We, yes, uh, however we, we want to call it. But let's get right into the thing that's going on with the uh, Stop Hate for Profit movement. Okay. Now, uh, perhaps it's standing up to certain social media platforms and refusing to stop misinformation from spreading across their sites. Or maybe it's a cost-saving move in the face of serious economic uh, times here. 
or maybe it's a combination, but in whatever the case is, major companies are putting their advertising dollars, taking them and uh, not using them on social media. They're pulling them from wow. Facebook and Instagram, and that wow. movement seems to be growing. Last week, Verizon uh, joined, I believe, the North Face, Patagonia, REI, Ben & Jerry's, and many other companies who, who don't want their ads appearing next to content or even on a platform that shares space with conspiracy theorists and hate groups. Facebook, as we have talked about, uh, has has not shown any uh, interest up until now into managing the content on their site posted by users, whether it was true or not. But uh, this group of six organizations is using the hashtag Stop Hate for Profit, and these groups include the Anti-Defamation League, the NAACP, Sleeping Giants, Color of Change, Free Press, and Common Sense. And so they've teamed up, you know, much like a, a supergroup almost. The Super Friends. Yes, uh, and recently called on uh, Facebook advertisers to pause their spending on the social media platform during the month of July to show that they will not support a company that puts profit over safety. So uh, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, and Unilever have also said that they were going to pause their advertising, I think, across all uh, social platforms. And uh, Stop Hate for Profit is now asking international advertisers uh, to join the movement in as well. I think they had about 100 advertisers on board. 100? Uh, yeah, because people, wow. you know, and, and and obviously some are bigger than others. But there's been this backlash to Facebook not clamping down on things that are blatantly racist or just all kinds of hate and conspiracy that defames people or, or spreads misinformation. So as more brands have pledged to stop advertising on the social network, there does seem to be maybe more of a, a effort to curb hate speech and harmful content. Uh, so maybe it's having some kind of an impact, although uh, the type of ad spending, I guess, that they do doesn't count for a super big chunk of Facebook's profits. And CEO Mark Zuckerberg still controls the company's stock, so he's ultimately the one in charge is not a, a big board of directors that can lean on him. However, by the end of last week, though, Zuckerberg reversed his previous stance and announced that Facebook would put warning labels on posts that break its rules but are considered newsworthy. So political, uh, I'm guessing. Twitter's been doing that for at least the past month. The social network also plans to attach labels to all posts across its network that discuss the subject of voting. And this is a move intended to hamper any sort of disenfranchisement of voters in the coming November election or misinformation there and uh, will direct users to accurate voting information for their area. Now, uh, under these newly announced policies, Facebook will also ban ads that claim people from a specific race, ethnicity, nationality, caste, gender, sexual orientation, or immigration origin that, you know, the, the posts say that these people are a threat to physical safety to the health of anyone else. Facebook's going to ban uh, all of those that attempt to spread fear about certain groups of people. The fact that they didn't have something like this before, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah, it's like, could that not have been like on yeah. your boilerplate there for yeah. uh, and, and uh, rigorously reinforced? Yeah. So so they're kind of stirring a little bit here. And I believe they're, we talked about the Facebook walkout a couple of weeks ago where the employees were not happy with the way that Facebook has been handling this. And I know uh, Zuckerberg and the president have had discussions about maintaining, you know, proper behavior and how, you know, Facebook is dealing with all of this. But this is sort of the first movement where he's kind of gotten off that, oh, we're not going to censor anyone's speech here. And I don't think it's censoring, well, A, because the First Amendment doesn't really cover, you know, private companies as public right. platforms. But if you're, you know, if you're tamping down on stuff that is blatantly untrue and harmful, that that's not really in the free speech category there. No, no. Not only are you, you know, spreading misinformation, but you're making money off of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why this this boycott, even though you they're not a significant amount of what 
type of advertising money they get, it's important because it sends a message. Yeah, you got to take a stand line, there. Yeah, you got to take a stand. And money talks. Yeah. That's the only thing that matters in this case. Yeah. Money. That's all this is about. Yeah, and I think the, the original group of boycotters were maybe going to be like 6 to you know 10% of, of Facebook's ad revenue. But I believe the stock price took a little bit of a hit because of the negative publicity. And so it, it, just have, it does seem to have gotten their attention, uh, shall we say. Good. So we'll see. Um, but sort of along those lines, uh, some politically conservative users have taken offense at seeing uh, posts labeled, which has led to a surge of like-minded people joining the social platform Parler, not spelled like, you know, a brownstone parlor, P-A-R-L-E-R. Uh, I'm guessing that's probably some derivative of parlez-vous. But as uh, CNBC reports, the catalyst for the latest growth surge was a story from the Wall Street Journal last week, uh, which said that the uh, Trump administration was looking for alternatives to Facebook and Twitter over concerns that more content was going to be blocked as the election campaign heats up. After the Wall Street Journal named Parler as a possible alternative, uh, CNBC went on to say two days later, Parler was the top-ranked iPhone app in the news category ahead of Twitter and Reddit. And uh, 24th overall, just behind Venmo and WhatsApp, user growth surged to 1.5 million from a mere million over the course of a week. Parler's 27-year-old founder and CEO, John Matsey, told CNBC, we're a community town square, an open town square with no censorship. If you can say it on the streets of New York, you can say it on Parler. I don't know how he, if he's been to New York. but uh, Yeah, if you Vegas. say certain things on New York, you get punched in the face. Yeah, you'll so, get your face you know. beat. But, um, yeah. but Parler does have its own set of community guidelines, uh, and it doesn't allow uh, terrorist organizations or support for terrorism or the sharing of false rumors, violent language towards others, blackmail or pornography. Like, a lot of these sites, they have this down, but the enforcement is another thing. So mm -hmm. I, I am not on Parler. Um, I can barely keep up with the social media I am allegedly belonging to. To me, it, you know, just when Twitter started and they had that very libertarian ethos that yeah. everyone would tell police and all that, it seems like this is probably where Twitter was maybe in 2007. Yeah. So we'll and see. They, they, will, they will wake up to the horrific realization that when misinformation and violent posts start catching on and, you know, making a difference, they will realize that they are responsible for the content, just like Facebook, just like Twitter. And it seems to me that I'm trying to be diplomatic here. It seems to me the voices that are flooding over to parlor are not your more reasonable and common sense type voices. Yeah. Well, I think it's saying. Probably. It sounds like it may be creating a bit of an echo chamber, too, if everyone's Correct. got yeah. the... But, but you know, they're, they're, they're often and they're doing it. But I, I think, to your point, too, all online communities kind of go through this growth cycle. And we've been seeing this since the days of the Usenet boards where oh, yeah. everything starts out and then there's a big fight and then there's a split and then things further fractionalize and then the original one falls apart and... It's just, it's a sort of a known thing, just given yep. the way that people behave online. So, you know, and then eventually someone will bring up Goblin's Law. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> although I don't know if that has as much weight as it does uh, anymore in the current days. But, yeah, no, pretty much not. No. But but it, uh, if you are looking for an alternative, uh, there there is this parter thing. Knock yourself out, folks. Yes. Uh, um, so moving on, uh, the past few years have seen an increase uh, in people speaking out about misogyny, racism, and sexual harassment. Uh, and the game sites uh, Kotaku and Polygon now report a number of incidents in the gaming world, uh, including accusations made against several big Twitch personalities 
and one of the co-creators of Cards Against Humanity, you know, that popular tabletop game that, mm-hmm. that always comes out at certain times. Accusations of uh, fostering racism and white supremacy were also leveled at Hasbro's Wizards of the Coast. And uh, that group has been called to task for portrayals of race in both Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Hasbro has announced that it would ban seven magic cards that contain racist imagery and text uh, from the play of the game and remove references to them uh, that are in an online database. The D&D team also announced it will be making changes to portions of the 5th edition uh, product line that fans have called out for being insensitive, like, I guess, the races that are just inherently evil within the game. So they're going to clean up D&D a little bit there. Some of this stuff is just so baked in until you step back and, and look at it. It's like, well, really, no race is inherently evil. Maybe we should not have that. So, so that's happening there. Moving on, uh, Apple held its Worldwide Developers Conference as a virtual event this year. Uh, as you uh, may recall from years past, uh, there's always a lot of buildup around WWDC. What are they going to announce? It's going to be we find out all the cool stuff of the fall. Oh, yeah. And uh, it seemed to me like it kind of got lost, perhaps just in the tidal wave of headlines that have been generating out of every corner of the earth this year. Or maybe people were just feeling a little meh about the whole thing. It was a virtual event, uh, even though they, they did make their announcements. But, but they, they did do it, and they had some announcements to make. Are you ready for iOS 14? I am ready for iOS 14. And it supposedly looks a lot <laughs> like Android, even more. They do this every year. They're just going to merge into one big giant. Uh, yeah, they uh, just wait a couple of iterations of Android and then, you know. Copy, copy, copy. Yes, indeed. Yeah, well, well, some of the things, and, and there, the uh, several sites did the, the sort of highlight roundup of everything that's in it, and I'll post some links to those uh, for people who deeply are into what might be coming from Apple uh, later this year. But just uh, for, for little hors d'oeuvres here, uh, there's an app library that automatically categorizes and sorts all of your apps, uh, highlighting the ones you use the most, yeah, I guess like a uh, recently or frequently used list. And there's also going to be a new home screen page that will show up after you swipe through your final page of apps, I guess you just uh, sort of do a little merry-go-round there. Widgets will now live on the home screen alongside your app icons uh, rather than being buried away on the today screen that you have to remember that they're there to go find them to use them. So so that's helpful. I do like the way the iPad has been using widgets, though, in the current thing where you, you can have them off to the side and, like, see how much battery life you have and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, the pattern of the stars for the evening from Starwalk, that sort of thing. <laughs> so, uh, so so, these are uh, more iPhone-oriented things. Um, so, And the iPhone will be getting picture-in-picture video, which the iPad has also had for a while. But now you will have a teeny tiny little PIP screen for your iPhone. And then, you know, if they, if they follow course, the iPhone screen will probably be bigger. In the new models. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that'll happen. Yes. Now, if you use messages, you can pin your most important conversations to the top of your messages list and uh, also uh, set up notifications on, you know, those group messages where everyone's yapping and you don't really care, but you yeah. just keep getting them because you're in the, the message uh, group. Yep. If you find yourself in one of those situations in iOS 14, uh, you should be able to just uh, set it so that you only get an alert when you're mentioned by name within that conversation so they can keep chattering on for for hours and multiple messages and you don't keep getting buzzed and seeing your battery tick down uh, for a conversation that you don't really care about. Yeah, basically like Slack where you just like when I am, you know, when my name is highlighted, please alert me. So yeah, precisely like Slack. Oh, and uh, because this is the world we live in now, um, emojis uh, can wear masks in the the new version of iOS. So God, that makes me sad. It does. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of their response to the time. So maybe like maybe it'll help 
kids remember. But since that, one of the recent updates, they did an adjustment to face ID where it was supposed to be able to recognize you if you were wearing a protective mask. And they had made some other accommodations when they were rolling out the COVID-19 contact tracing stuff. So they're, they're trying to leverage the tech in multiple ways to kind of meet the moment. It still kind of feels very jarring here because I think it is a jarring time, but they're right there. And maybe if a little kid sees that they can put a mask on his memoji, then he'll, you know, uh, remember to wear one in real life. Hey, I know that I can't open my phone with my mask on so far. So I've had to take the face ID off. Yes. So we'll see if that gets any better as they refine that particular algorithm. So so that's some of the highlights for the iPhone stuff. For the next version of Mac OS will be called Big Sur, S-U-R, mm. you know, as, as the uh, the California area there. And, Big uh, South. Big yes. South. Yes. Uh, and its visual interface has moved closer to that of iOS. So just as iOS, you know, and Android are starting to look alike. Now uh, Apple is moving to make the desktop sort of rounded corner icons, that kind of thing, trying to make it a little more iOS, I guess, for the seamless back and forth between your various devices. The Mac will also be getting its own iOS-like control center for quick access to settings and a redesigned notification center. The Maps app and Safari browser are also getting uh, upgrades and overhauls. And yes, uh, Apple is ditching the Intel processors under the hood of its Mac hardware and moving to its very own custom design chip, which means uh, eventually you can run iOS apps on a Mac with a new chip, but not Windows with Boot Camp because that needs the Intel Macs. So if you need to do any Windows work uh, and happen to have one of these new Mac processors, it sounds like you need to go to the emulation, uh, you know, your parallels, your VM box, that sort of thing. Uh, yes, if you, you need to run Windows for any reason because uh, the Boot Camp requires the Intel chip that's in the current Mac set. So, so that was uh, some, some of the highlights uh, that they had. And now that the uh, Worldwide Developers Conference is over, though, everyone sort of processes those announcements and then they turn right back around into the traditional speculation over the next iPhone model, which in theory would come out this fall, but who knows with the way the supply chain is uh, these days. And this would be the iPhone 12 in case we've lost count. <laughs> The uh, legendary analyst Ming-Chi Kuo, who's had a very good track record of predicting Apple's next moves, uh, says he expects Apple will be streamlining its packaging and ditching both the wired earbuds and the power adapter from the in-the-box accessories that you traditionally get with an iPhone purchase. And they're, they're basing this on a couple of things, partly because the new models are expected to include the newer, more expensive 5G networking components. And it's thought that Apple needed to offset some of the costs for that with smaller packaging and lower freight costs and, quite frankly, not having to make all of these uh, earbuds and, and chargers to put in the box for those material costs there. And as we know, Apple has a fairly lucrative line of white plastic adapters, chargers, cables, and other accessories that it will gladly sell you separately. So a little bit of it feels kind of like the, the airline starting to charge you for every single little thing. Uh, from I hate everything to, about that. hate everything about yeah. what you just said. Yeah, so they are thinking, well, uh, and I think I'm I'm just guessing too, I'm, I'm not a business major, but if you take out the wired headphones and people are thinking, oh, I have to get some, some headphones for this, maybe they're going to take a second look at the more expensive wireless AirPod earbuds that Apple also just happens to sell. So it uh, could be a little of that, you know, shoving you into this lane here as well. They've become so sleazy. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, it's, it's all about, you know, well, you know, they said this with the printers. It's not about the hardware. It's about selling the consumables. So the new iPhone models themselves, uh, they're expecting a new smaller 5.4-inch screen model along with two 6.1-inch models and a new 6.7-inch max size of this iPhone 12 mm. when, when they do show their little iPhone face IDs probably at the end of the year. So that's kind of what Apple's uh, working on. Now, this past March, while uh, coronavirus stories were dominating the global headlines, researchers discovered uh, that more than four dozen iOS apps were very quietly invading user privacy and reading the text stored in the clipboard area of the user's device. Ooh. Yeah, I was like, get out of my clipboard. And as you think about it, like all kinds of things are copied to your clipboard whenever you cut or copy text. You know, it could be a password. It could be an account link to something. It could be some other piece of personal information. Sure. People are moving this from, from one app to another, and sometimes it's very sensitive information. So uh, the researchers on this project found that the nosy apps uh, were using an iOS programming interface that retrieves the text from the user's clipboards. One of the big offenders here, though, was TikTok, and they Ooh. got busted for doing the clipboard snooping and even though the company said back then it would stop doing the 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 clipboard reading it apparently hasn't done so yet and uh there's there's uh several other guilty parties here uh, apps from several major news organizations including ones that that we are very familiar with were also on the list of, of clipboard snoopers and also a bunch of games i think fruit ninja might have even been on there so Many apps, and I, I think the researchers, once they made this public, uh, the people who uh, care about integrity will will have to step up there. But you think about it, because Apple's got that universal clipboard feature that lets you cut and paste between different devices. Yep. You know, so the security implications here are considerable. Uh, I would have to say. Guess what I'm uninstalling right now. Bye-bye, TikTok. Yes. Um, now, in a recent update uh, to the, I guess it's the iOS 14 beta, Apple has included a feature that alerts you when apps are reading the clipboard's contents. So uh, Apple is trying to give you a little bit of a heads up if someone is abusing that. So so, so maybe that will help. Um, so, so that's been a lot of Apple news. Uh, we do have some news from the Google side of the aisle as well. We're going to get googly now? Uh, yeah, we're going to get a little googly. Uh, the Big G has announced a new licensing program to, quote, pay publishers for high-quality content for a news experience launching later this year. Uh, this program will help participating publishers monetize their content through an enhanced storytelling experience, uh, as they say there, uh, that lets people go deeper into complex stories and stay informed with a whole bunch of different issues and interests. So we've seen a lot of publishers, particularly around uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus, made some of their content free or made it easier for people to go in deeper just to find uh, public health information. I think this is sort of moving it up away from more of the public health and, and just uh, what's going on in the world in general. Google has signed partnerships with local and national publications in Germany, Australia, and Brazil, and uh, we'll be making uh, more announcements on this later in the year. So a lot of their talk about helping the news industry and money that they're putting towards initiatives to do that, uh, we're seeing a little bit of it here. Google's YouTube site is also testing the ability to upload multiple 15-second clips and have them all get merged into a single video. Now, uh, you think, wait, does, is this not what YouTube Stories does? And, and the main difference between this new endeavor and the existing YouTube Stories feature is that users can create videos that will live on their YouTube channel instead of just in the dedicated Stories section ah. there. So it, it puts it a little more out there to be seen. 
So, so they're they're just tinkering with that. I think it's still one of their you know experimental things. But they did have a couple of announcements on uh, the Google Blogs though too. The Google Photos app and service has also gotten a redesign. As a company blog post explains, in the redesigned Google Photos, we're giving your photos and videos more prominence and bringing search front and center with three new tabs. These will be Photos, Search, and Library. Now, uh, the Photos tab contains all your pictures and videos, but now you'll see larger thumbnails, autoplaying videos, and less white space between the photos, I guess, maybe just to densify that a little bit. The Search tab uh, does what you think it does and lets you look up uh, people, places, and things in your picture library. There's also a new interactive map view and the library tab contains the groups and destinations in your photo library like albums, favorites, trash, archive, all that that stuff that we're used to seeing our photos grouped by. And if you're using Google Photos in the U.S., European Union, or Canada, you'll also see a print store option where you can purchase products featuring your very own photos on uh, calendars, mugs, that sort of thing. Ah. So Google's been keeping busy while, you know, Apple's doing its thing. And finally... And finally... Pandemic precautions and social distancing may be keeping people out of physical movie theaters, but Fortnite Party Royale mode is trying to fill that void. We talked about Party Royale, I think, a few, maybe a month ago, so maybe it's longer. I can't tell anymore. We have talked about it before, though, but they are really uh, getting the party on here. They're screening, uh, or they just screened two Christopher Nolan films within the world for viewers to watch together. As the BBC reports, U.S. viewers recently watched Inception, all in sort of group watch thing. Good flick. Audiences in the somewhat United Kingdom kingdom saw the prestige and unlike in a physical theater with physical consequences virtual viewers there get the vague sense of being in the same physical space with each other and you can also throw tomatoes at the screen and mute annoying audience members oh to have that in new york oh yes I guess uh, the, the virtual version does have its uh, advantages. And Party Royale is just one of the group viewing apps and extensions out there that are really working to try to bring people together during the stay-at-home orders and quarantine isolation stuff that's going on right now. There's a BBC Together app. If you live in the UK, you can watch BBC shows together. Netflix Party we've talked about, a Chrome extension that also lets you sync up and watch the same movie together. And if you have a set of VR goggles, uh, you can also go deeper into the Matrix with the big screen app. And I think it works with most of the Oculi and and all of the the major name brand goggles, but you get the VR experience of being in a theater, even with, you know, the seats and the angle and all that. And then you watch... Sticky floors? Sticky floors? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they've got the... Like if it's full holodeck with sticky floors, but it gives you that feeling of when you have the goggles on. So you're watching the movie in the main part, but then you've got all this periphery stuff that, that makes it feel like you're sitting in a theater. So... I love that. That's great. Yeah, they are trying to step up, and I know a lot of the the movie nights that they're having are reruns of stuff because a lot of major Hollywood productions have not come out. They keep getting delayed. I think Mulan and Tenet have gotten delayed even farther when they got delayed the first time. So, and isn't the Wonder Woman movie also yeah, backed up? Yeah, that that also got moved out of the summer. So yeah, we have to wait much longer for the 1984 version of Wonder Woman. But the tech people are trying to figure out how to simulate all of this real time shared space experiences that we have, whether or not they, I don't think they can ultimately replace being annoyed in a New York movie theater and and yelling at people, but it can be a little bit of of the familiar, I guess, in these uncertain times. Yeah, you know what? I ain't going to a movie theater for a long while. Well, you wouldn't go when the bed bug thing hit New York. I would not go with the bed bug thing. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. If I went in there and they had them like fluffy seats, mm -mm, I wasn't going to stay. Yeah. -uh. I have not gone to a lot of movies unless it was like a really early showing of something I really, really, really yeah. wanted to see. Um, yeah. So so yeah, the, the virtual movie space, I'm interested to see how this develops because it is a, sort of a 
a um, very techy solution to uh, to trying to be together. So, and it sounds like fun. Yeah, and you know, it actually you, sounds like legitimate fun. Yeah, and and if, if part of you know the the sort of community spirit of either making fun of the film in the right parts or having the same reaction, if you can share those reactions and you still get what the other person is saying, you know, maybe they don't need to be physically right next to you. You're still getting their spirit. There you go. So we'll see. Um, but we will have links to all of these stories on our show page for anyone who wants to read more, uh, do the deep dive into all of the news headlines this week. You can find that page of links at poptechjam.com. Up next, uh, we're going to talk about doing some family history. Pedro, I have a kind of hopefully helpful hint here. Uh, maybe it's more of a project type thing. But did you grow up with a small town paper? I mean, you grew up in New York, so did you have like a small town community paper? I had a, just... a, we had the Bronx Press Review. Yeah. That's what we had. It was a local newspaper. Yeah, and, and local news, which has suffered greatly in probably over the past decade or so since the internet has taken over a lot of that and just kind of crushed out the the extreme hyper-local stuff that you get for somebody who wants to take the time to report on community board meetings and, you know, this and that and the other. You kind of feel that loss. But one of the things that I know is because I recently did a story on um, small papers or, or local papers back in the day, and this is going back probably 100 years Small town papers and community local papers, they were the Facebook of their day because they wow. would get up in everyone's business and print what people were doing. It was like the status update, you know, Miss Dorleen so-and-so has gone to visit her cousin in the next town. And so you would get all of these updates about people and everyone kind of knew what was going on. And it would vary from region to region and town to town. But but back then, this, this was sort of how people knew what everyone else was doing because I think that need, the human need to be nosy is always there. It's just uh, Facebook and Twitter and, and the social media groups made it much more convenient and easy to get that. And so I was looking into this for, for a story I was doing. And did, did you ever appear in your local Bronx newspaper? I don't think so. Maybe for like a graduation announcement or something like that, but nothing nothing that comes to mind. Yeah, well, even a graduation announcement. I mean, that, that pinpoints a certain point of your life. And if this newspaper has yeah. all been archived, your great-grandchildren could look it up someday and say, oh, oh look, well, he, yeah. he graduated, you know. I, I see it on the microfilm here. This is when he graduated. And so I got interested in it just because of the whole – local paper thing and, and because watching newspapers sort of die all around us has been very depressing and I wanted to go back and look at the heyday. And and they used to be quite prolific. I mean, across the country, you know, it wasn't like down to like the block level, but every little community had some kind of newsletter or paper. Maybe it wasn't weekly, but they, they had some sort of shared printed matter that they put out for either, you know, just like town business or meetings or whatever. So I was starting to think about that and also thinking about how this meets up with people doing family tree research because part of this Ancestry.com, you know, the huge mega genealogy site – uh, bought the newspapers.com archive a while back. And so they have started to incorporate that if you're searching for family. When you do an ancestry search for a relative, uh, if it's linked into newspapers.com and you've got the right uh, subscription, you can search a relative's name and find out, oh, here's a newspaper article when he was the all-city championship bowler for his uh, particular year or whatever. And so you, you get those little bits of life that maybe don't come up in just a, a chart of like, birth and death dates and maybe a marriage certificate. That yeah, could also prove quite embarrassing though. Yeah, that's true. You know, the, I had a few in the police blotter um, when I was there looking. You go. Um, there you go. 
but uh, they were just you know, spirited. Um, but the uh, <laughs> spirited, yes, yes, that's what they were. Yes, the, the newspapers just, and this was contemporaneous accounts, and so you got what was happening then, and you would see like, oh, my grandmother was really into jewelry making, and she won a contest uh, at her high school, and they put it in the local paper. So you see these pieces that even if these people uh, have been gone out of your life forever there's these little time capsule moments of what they were like as kids and what they were into i mean you have to to be sort of really diligent because there is no guarantee that you'll get any results here it depends on what your family was and where they were and what the local media was at the time and it can be very time consuming uh, even with search tools uh, just to kind of dig down but even if you knew you had like a grandparent who was graduating in the 30s in the teeth of the Depression and went back and looked at newspapers at that time, you could sort of get a feel of what they were facing as they went out into the world. So it's, it's kind of good for contextual stuff like that. But oh, yeah. but if you were at all interested in uh, in doing some of this kind of archival research, there's a lot of, of newspaper subscription services out there. Some are paid. Some are free. The Library of Congress actually has uh, quite a few that you can look at for free. But uh, in order to do this, you, you need a couple of things. First, you need to know who you are looking for. So if you haven't done a family tree or if you just have vague biographical details, finding a genealogy service that compiles a lot of the material, birth and death records, marriage certificates, public notices, census records, draft records, that sort of thing, can help you piece together timelines of these of your ancestors' lives. Ancestry.com, we mentioned them before, and MyHeritage are two of the really big ones. And they have a lot of stuff, but you do have to pay. Uh, the subscription base. But if you're into it, maybe that's something you don't mind paying for. If you're looking for free resources, there's uh, Family Tree Wikis out there. The National Archives site has a whole resources for genealogists page that has a ton of uh, links that can point you to the right direction. A lot of times the stuff they have made just point you back to Ancestry, but that means that's where it's at. You can get some tips there too because a lot of times if you're looking for – your roots, it's not very direct, especially if you have family that was impacted by immigration and not getting, you know, recorded when they came in the country. Slavery is another thing that ripped families apart, that uh, snuffed out a lot of branches uh, to family trees. So one of the things the National Archives does is they've set up some uh, resource pages for people who are looking uh, specifically for African-American ancestors, Chinese-American ancestors, Hispanic and Latino ancestors, uh, Japanese-American ancestors, and also uh, Native American forebears. So that that and we'll have, I'll link to the site uh, within the story. A Family Search, which is run by the uh, Church of Jesus Christ for Latter Day Saints, also known as the Mormons, also has a fairly huge archive of billions of records. You just need to sign up for a free account to use it because the genealogy and ancestry thing is uh, very important to Mormon ideology. So they maintain this database for that. Genie.com, which is owned by MyHeritage, uh, has a free basic family tree building service and a huge social community that encourages people to work together, like if, you know who has ancestors that you don't in your uh, tree and vice versa. Immigration museums can also have free online databases. Uh, the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation passenger search. If you think you have relatives that maybe came over on the boat from there, uh, they, they do have some digitized uh, ship's manifests. Uh, sometimes you have to pay to, to see the stuff, but you can at least find out maybe if you had a relative uh, come through uh, New York. So when, once you figure out who is in your tree that you want to search and you've got names and you got relative dates and, oh, they lived in this part of Ohio or, oh, they lived here, then you can start looking for newspapers that match that time period and place in the country that the ancestors lived in. So, so once you have this information – 
just pick a newspaper archive. Uh, uh, Newspapers.com is the big paid archive if you wanted to uh, drop a little coin there. They also have a free trial period, too, so you can try out and see if you like it. And there were a ton of papers in the 19th and 20th century uh, all over the country that were very industrious. They talked about business dealings, town government activity, social gatherings, obituaries. Uh, If you read a contemporary obituary of a relative, you you may find out more than, than just seeing a date carved on a headstone. And I found this out, too. The style of writing, particularly back in the 19th and early 20th century, was quite florid uh, compared <laughs> today. And, and so you see, you know, she was a remarkably well-preserved old lady and she died. So it's, it's, they, they're lacking the sensitivity. Um, on that note, also, because these are written in the time period in which they existed and America uh, is still trying to get there, uh, there's a lot of unchecked misogyny, racism, and xenophobia in oh, yeah. some of these things. And oh, so yeah. you kind of have to put on your rhino skin just to deal with that was what it was like back then. You know, so you go through and, and you deal with all that, but you, you pull out the nuggets of information uh, that you want. So if, if you're looking around, newspapers.com is the big paid archive. As we mentioned, they've got like 17,000 digitized publications and they're always adding more. I think subscriptions are about eight bucks a month and you get a discount if you do multiple months. But the Library of Congress site has a, a whole bunch of links there, including the Chronicling America site. But they have this... Um, uh, Page links called Newspaper Archives, Indexes, and Morgues on the Library of Congress site. If you search for that, uh, there'll also be a link to it in the piece I'm going to post on our site. And you can find uh, many digitized publications there, including African-American newspapers, Mexican-American newspapers, and also Cherokee newspapers because the Cherokee had a written language and they made newspapers. The Ancestor Hunt genealogy site also has a whole bunch of historical newspapers uh, listed online. And there's this uh, other site called Elefind, and it has international papers, and it's basically they digitize them and they put them in the search engine, and you can find them all over the world. Some of the archives are free, some are not. A lot of them are microfilmed images where the quality may be not super great depending on the source material, but uh, it is there in some form that you can read. So uh, so a lot of, of out there, you can also go to, when we can actually move around freely again, um, uh, physical libraries and uh, historical and genealogical societies also may have books and periodicals uh, that recorded the development of the area. Like if you know that your family has been in this town for a hundred years, then go to, you know, go to that town or, or look up some sources from there and see if there is any information about uh, when your family may have lived there. A lot of these are really boring and read like land surveys, which essentially is what they are, but uh, could be useful. And you can also find a lot of these digitized on Google Books or an independent archivist who has found these old, you know, the history of Madison County and they've scanned it and, and put it online so you can can page through that way. So, so there's a lot of stuff out there. Google Books, the Internet Archive, again, could have them. Um, the Roots website also has uh, tips on searching uh, the Red Book Collection of American State, County, and Town Resources, uh, just for like local land, tax, real estate records, that sort of thing. And uh, when you get to the, the sort of wind down on your search, this is another site that Ancestry owns, uh, but Find a Grave, which sounds morbid, but it's yeah, actually right. really – useful if you cannot get out and go 3,000 miles away to see where an ancestor was buried, if they have covered it. It's a um, a database of both photographs of headstones and records of where people are buried. And occasionally you'll see the obituary that appeared at the time next to it. So if you search for a relative, say, oh, so-and-so is buried in this cemetery in this town. And even if you can't get there, if a volunteer has gone and photographed that area, you could see a photograph of your ancestor's headstone. You know, there's a little virtual memorial and you pay your respects. 
there. But but it's useful because in even if you plan to go there, you know what to look for. Fascinating. Yeah, a lot of stuff online. Um, again, all of this will vary on your particular family history and how well it was recorded. Some some families did not particularly record stuff. You know, they didn't do the whole baptism thing where it's going to be on record some church or they mainly relied on an oral history without writing it down. And that oral history uh, went with the last relative who remembered it. So uh, it varies across the board. But if you do happen to hit the jackpot, you can find some really interesting things and, and just get a better picture of what life was like back in the day. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. So, and also if you've got a lot of time because you can't really go out and go to the movies or do stuff and, you know, it, it can help fill your days too. <laughs> That's very true. So uh, very I, true. I will post a link uh, to a story that has all of the links of the, the various resources I mentioned here, all in one handy article. That, that'll be also on our show page at poptechjam.com. And with that, we should probably wind up. Yeah, we should. Let's thank the bros. Thank you, bros. Thank you, bros. Builtbybros.com. If you think it, they will build it. And we'd like to thank you, listeners. We hope everyone out there is uh, safe and hopefully still sane uh, as we march on through. Uh, I think it's been since mid-March since uh, many people uh, had any contact with uh, normal life back as we knew it. Um, but but things are true. starting to open up a little bit around the country. But be safe. Wear a mask. You know, keep yourself healthy. Yes, indeed. Yeah, there's and there's so many great novelty masks out there too. It's even kind of fun. Yeah, have a little fun to sort of personalize your uh, commitment to public safety. So until next time, when we are back with more, I'm JD Beersdorfer, and I'm Pedro Rafael Rosado. Titans, huh? I should go watch Titans. It's a good show. All right, I'll go watch Titans. <laughs>